turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. One of the reasons we gather here is to hear from the Lord. And every time we read these scriptures, we can say confidently, Thus saith the Lord. This is God speaking to us. Let us hear. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses was lifted up, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let us pray. God, these are your words. These are the very words of life. And God, this morning to them, would they be life to us. Holy Spirit, would you open your word to us and help us to see to delight and love Jesus Christ. Would you remove our doubts and our confidence in our own ability and show us what you have done. Speak to us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're just joining us, we have been walking through the Gospel of John for the last few weeks, over a month now, and uh, the Gospel of John is a historical account. It is written by uh, one of Jesus' disciples, in fact, we believe his cousin, uh, John, and he is showing to us, um, as Jared said, he's curating for us these signs. He's showing us these things that Jesus has done and said in order that we might believe, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And so last week, we walked through um, the cleansing of the temple when Jesus came to the temple at Jerusalem, and he began to overturn the tables of the money changers and began to declare, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves and stop worshiping in this way. And they asked him for a sign, and he said, tear this temple down in three days and I will raise it up again. 
course, that went over their heads. He was talking about his body. He was talking about his own body, temple. And then it makes an interesting statement at the very end. The last verse says, he did not entrust himself. Even though many believed in him, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. And so this week, John is going to be doing something different. He's kind of going to zero in on this. He's going to use a case study of what this kind of false faith is. And he's going to use a man named Nicodemus to show what it looks like to believe in Jesus without really believing in Jesus. And so let's go ahead and jump in, verses 1 through 2. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here's the scene. This Pharisee, this, this man, this ruler of the Jews, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus at night. Now, Nicodemus is um, he's a pretty well-off guy. He's... Um, one of the highest levels of the local government that can be had. He's a ruler of the Jews. But not only that, he's somewhat of a religious authority among the Jews, right? This guy has studied. He knows his Old Testament, kind of front and back. And he comes to Jesus, this uneducated carpenter, this man who has spent the first 30 years of his life building tables and chairs. And he says to him, Rabbi. It's an interesting scene here. We see we know that um, a lot of scholars tend to make a little bit too much out of the fact that he came to Jesus at nighttime. This doesn't necessarily mean that he was ashamed to come to Jesus during the day. In fact, we find several examples in the, in the New Testament uh, where people go to other people's houses at nighttime. Like Jesus says to Zacchaeus, this very night I will dine with you in your house. And so this doesn't necessarily mean anything. But we know uh, who Jesus was, and we know his past. Um, we get a scene of this in John seven fifteen. It says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So again, Jesus is this uneducated carpenter, yet he speaks not only with wisdom that confounds the scholars, he does these miraculous signs, and he speaks with authority. You guys remember the temple he turned over the tables? What gives you the authority to do this? So he, um, Nicodemus is speaking not only on his own behalf, but he's speaking on the rabbis. Notice he says, we, we see that you have come from God, and we know that no one can do these signs unless you do them. So Nicodemus is speaking not only of himself, he's speaking about the Pharisees whom he's representing. And so we can assume of Nicodemus, that there's some humility about this man. This man who himself is a scholar is coming to, like I said, someone who's uneducated and calling him rabbi or teacher. Whether this, or, whether this is humility is genuine or not, we do know that there is kind of a second motive here. Like I said, he's coming on a fact-finding mission. What is Jesus really teaching? What is he really doing? He's coming to find out on behalf of the Pharisees. So Jesus... Sensing this, sidesteps his compliment and confronts him. In verse 3, he says, Jesus answered him, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow, what, what did that have to do with what Nicodemus said, right? Well, Jesus, like I said, Jesus kind of sidesteps this and he says, you can't see the kingdom unless you are born again. Now, before we get too far into this, let's examine that, that, that statement. What, what does Jesus mean by the kingdom? We see this, we see this term in other gospels, like in, in, in Mark, when he's preaching, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes this, this phrase kingdom in, in this way. The kingdom of God means the reign of God, the obvious reign of God, where you see that Jesus is manifestly Lord. That is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus here, you know, like I said, he's speaking with authority, but not only is he speaking with authority, he's doing things. He's doing signs that are showing his authority. He commands the body to heal, and the body heals. Goodness sakes, how many sicknesses have we had this month? And to say, man, I, I wish I could speak to my own body and cause it to heal. But Jesus has authority over every cell of the human body. Not only that, he speaks to demons, and demons flee. Jesus has authority over demons, and we learn later he has authority over angels. He said he could call legions of angels to his side. Jesus has authority over spirits. And we just saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus has lordship over matter. He speaks to molecules of water, and these molecules of water turn into molecules of wine, right? Who is this Jesus who has this authority? When you see Jesus clearly reigning, that is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, when he hears Nicodemus' well-intentioned gesture, we see that you come from God, but knows that Nicodemus doesn't see Jesus for who he is as king, he says, you don't recognize my kingdom. In fact, he tells him, you don't believe and you don't receive my testimony. He says, you think you understand what's going on, but you don't even have the ability to recognize what's going on because you have not been born again. Notice this passage comes directly after the passage about Jesus not entrusting himself to those who had a false faith. In a very real sense, Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus why he doesn't believe. It's because he hasn't been born again. So Nicodemus, flustered by this statement, responds by asking Jesus an absurd question. In verses 4 through 7, Nicodemus says to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus patiently clarifies. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not only can he not see the kingdom of God, not only can he not recognize the kingdom of God at work, he cannot enter the kingdom unless he has been born again. Now what does Jesus mean here by water and the spirit? Unless one is born of water and the spirit. There are multiple ways to interpret this, but I think when we look to the Bible, when we look to the scriptures, the easiest way is to allow them to interpret themselves. 
right? And so we're going to look here to verse 6 to interpret verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Now, many scholars think that born of water here is referencing physical birth, right? Many of our women here have been pregnant and had children, and you know that that entails some, some water, right? Uh, water breaks, fluid from the amniotic sac comes out, and oh, water's broken, it's time for a baby. This is what many scholars believe that Jesus is referring to here, because that which is born of flesh is flesh. He's referring to physical birth. And yet there's another type of birth that is being referenced here by Jesus. Spiritual birth. What is being born of the Spirit? What does it mean to be born again or born from above, literally, in the Greek? This, this word connotes or shows a fundamental change at a person in the deepest level. We're talking about a change in heart that is powerful and irreversible and there are different ways that the New Testament authors show this very uh, occurrence. So Jesus here uses the language of new birth. Uh, Peter also uses the language of new birth in 1 Peter 1. But we find in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is therefore a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So Paul is using the image of creation to illustrate the same way that Jesus is talking about of a new birth. He also uses in Colossians and Romans and Ephesians another image. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. So, this, so we have another image here, resurrection. You are dead and God brings you to life. So resurrection and new creation and birth are all illustrating the same thing. God speaks. He gives life, new life to lifeless sinners. He speaks in like creation roaring into existence from nothing. Our once dead hearts beat with new life. This is regeneration. This is being born again. The heart goes from hating God to loving God. Rejection of his word to trusting his word. It is accompanied by conviction of sin and repentance. And it, the heart goes from delighting in sin and loving sin to hating sin itself. And this new birth is irreversible. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what being born of the Spirit is. But how does this new birth happen? How does one become born again? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says something pretty profound here. He likens the new birth to the wind. Wind um, that you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, but you can see its effects, just like you can see the limbs shaking in, in the breeze or leaves blowing across the ground or the rain going this way instead of this way. You see the effects of the wind on things, but you don't actually see the wind in and of itself. 
He says, so, or in this way, it is with those who are born of the Spirit. And something interesting here, this word wind, this word wind also is breath in Greek, also is spirit. This word pneuma, it's where we get the word pneumonia, it's where we get the word pneumatic tools, right? And things that have to do with pressure and wind, right? It's actually, and there's an equivalent in the English language, respiration, that S-P-I-R, is the same word spirit. That's the root word. And so Jesus is using kind of a play on words to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. He comes and he goes and no one causes him to do anything. We can't even really trace what he's doing. We can only see his effects on people. Just in the same way that you can see the effects of the wind on matter, you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit on a person. But, just as one cannot command or influence the wind, one cannot cause himself or anyone else to be born again. We're going to look, because he's already spoken of new birth in, in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. We've already read this, but this is going to give us some context for what he's talking about here. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Amen. What is this birth? What are we talking about here? So notice, there's, there's, a, there's a group of people that he's talking about. All who did receive him, who believed in his name. This group of people were born. And they were born not of blood. So you cannot inherit this. You are not born into Christianity. You don't, coming from the right family does not ensure that you are a Christian. You cannot be born, born again. Not of the will of flesh. You cannot will yourself to be born. You don't cause new birth to happen by gritting your teeth and white knuckling and saying, oh, be born, be born, be born. I trust, I trust, I trust. This does not cause one to be born again. It's not the will of the flesh and not the will of man. So no man can cause another man to be born again. You can't put your hand on somebody and say, you're born again. And it happened. We don't have the power to do that. New birth happens like the wind. We don't control it. God, the Holy Spirit, comes upon a person and causes him to be born again. God and God alone can cause someone to have new life. Now, if you're anything like me, upon hearing this, maybe for the first time, because I, I grew up hearing something a little bit different. I grew up hearing, you can be born again if you follow steps A, B, and C, right? If you will do this, then you will be born again. But hearing this, that no, God causes someone to be born again, and that's seemingly at random. A couple of feelings could be coming up in you. Anger. What do you mean I didn't cause myself to be born again? I chose Christ. Or desperation. If I cannot cause myself or my loved ones to be born again, how is there any hope for us? What if God doesn't do his part? You're not alone in this. 
Jesus, the simple carpenter, looks at the Pharisee, the shining example of piety who lives his life on his terms with God, thinking that his good deeds set him with God, that his good deeds make him right with God. And he tells him something that, no, you cannot do that. You have to do something that you cannot do. Be born again. And this is extremely confusing to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says in verse 9 and 10, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You hear the astonishment in the voice of Jesus. You don't understand these things. You see, Jesus expects Nicodemus, a scholar of the law and the prophets, to know something. He's supposed to know something about this new birth. It was prophesied. This, is, this shouldn't be new news. In Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, God speaks of this very new birth. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I'll remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice the active party in these verses. I will, I will, I will, I will remove your heart of stone and I will put in a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will cleanse you from your idols and I will cause you to walk according to my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is the active party in these verses. In fact, Nicodemus should know this because the whole story of Israel is Israel messing up breaking their covenant with God over and over and over again, failing and failing. And yet God always keeps his side of the covenant regardless. All the Old Testament seem, um, serves to illustrate this very fact. But not only this, in the New Testament as well, we have picture after picture. In 1 Peter 1.3, listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Who has caused? He has caused us to be born again. Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And in Philippians 1.29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Do you believe in Christ? Then it was granted to you. Do you believe? This is the reason. When we are born, we are born alienated from God. We are born strangers from God. Paul in Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 2.1-6 says this. Again, this resurrection language, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God made us alive. Another reason for this is that in our fallen nature, in the way that we are born, in the way that we relate to God now, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, in Romans 8, 7, says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. This is our nature when we are born. We are born children of wrath, hating God, hating one another. We need to be born again. We need God to breathe life into our dead hearts. This is regeneration, to be born again. And finally, in John 6, 63, later on we'll read, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So here's the picture. Jesus stands at the tomb and he cries, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who is dead, obeys. Lazarus was not mostly dead, you remember, the princess bride. No, he was a decomposing corpse. And yet at the words of Jesus, his heart beat. His limbs moved. He obeyed because Jesus' command empowered him to obey. Jesus speaks and there is life. Just as you did not cause yourself to be born again, to be born the first time, you cannot cause yourself to be born again. Right? Anybody cause yourself to be born? You, you go up to your parents and say, hey, you know, I'd like to be born sometime soon. No, that's not how it works. In the same way, Jesus wasn't there, or Lazarus wasn't there patting his foot, waiting on Jesus to come and say, man, I really want to live again. No, he was stone dead. And God speaks and he has life. Now, there are two possible responses to hearing these truths. If you were like me, the first time you heard this message is anger. As if to say, don't take this out of my hands. Don't tell me that I can't choose Jesus whenever I want to. Don't take away the security of knowing that I can change my fate and I can change my destiny. It depends on me. Or the second response. Thankfulness. As if to say, Jesus, thank you. I would mess this up. Praise God, this doesn't depend on me because I would blow it. I know myself and I know how sinful I can be. I know how I already abuse the grace of God. I cannot be trusted to save myself. When we know the depth of our sin, we know that we do not deserve new birth. We know that we cannot save ourselves, but we have to cast ourselves on the grace of God. And God alone. Yet it is this very self-knowledge that Nicodemus lacks. Let's look to what Jesus says to him in verses 11 through 12. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus, like, he, like the people of the temple, knows the heart of Nicodemus. And at this point, Nicodemus has not been born again. He says, you do not believe and you do not receive. But here's the funny thing. We see a picture of Nicodemus later in the same book. In John 19.39, gives the account of what, Jesus, what Nicodemus has done. 19.39-40. Nicodemus also, so this is after Jesus, who had been crucified, was taken off the cross. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus risked his very reputation to honor Jesus. And so we can assume that sometime between here and there, he was born again. And in fact, though Nicodemus did not yet believe, this very conversation was perhaps the means through which God caused him to be born again. The Holy Spirit at some point brought these words of Jesus to life in the heart of Nicodemus. And what words did he bring to life? Listen to this. Jesus turns to the scholar of the Old Testament and he brings him face to face with the reality of what he has come to do. And he uses this picture from the Old Testament. He says in verses 13 through 15, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is taken from a story in the Old Testament found in Numbers 5 through 9. And so that we can get a clearer picture of what, just what Jesus is saying about, we're going to read this passage together. And so would you follow along silently with me? Numbers 21, 5 through 9. And the people spoke against, Ma, against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food, speaking of the manna that God provided for them in the wilderness. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to that bronze serpent and live. Just like the Pharisees would do, just like we have done, the people of God in the Old Testament rejected God. They spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. In this very same way, the Pharisees will reject Jesus in the same way that the Israelites rejected Moses as God's leader. 
But here's the picture. All of us are afflicted. We have all rejected God. And the penalty for that, the penalty for this sin is death. We learn this in Genesis 1, or in Genesis 2. Death is the penalty for breaking God's law. And so the snakes were the penalty, the curse for the people's sin. And once bitten by these deadly serpents, they would die. So Moses is then commanded to, take, to make a bronze serpent and to hang it up for all to see. And all who looked on the symbol of their curse would live, be freed from their curse. Does that sound familiar? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We, like the Israelites, are afflicted with a deadly curse. We, like them, look to the one who was made a symbol of our curse. You see, when Jesus was beaten with whips, when he was beaten with rods, when he was crucified, it said he was, he was marred beyond recognition. You couldn't even recognize him as a man. And he was hanged on this cross, this very picture of death itself. And when we look to the cross, we see, I deserve to die like that. In the same way that the Israelites looked to the snakes and said, I deserve to die by that snake. We look to the symbol of our curse. And see the one who has borne our curse for us, who has made a curse for us. But as Nicodemus would see, as all the world would see, as very history itself was divided into before Christ and after the year of the Lord. No matter what you call it, this is the very point through which all of history is divided. When Jesus raises from the dead. Victorious over death and hell and the grave. This is the gospel that is being preached to Nicodemus. And this is the very gospel that comes to life in the heart of Nicodemus when the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And so we ask, what does this mean for us? What are the implications of this passage for us? What do we do with this truth? First, we don't assume that everybody in this room, everybody watching, our believers. We know that there are some here that have yet to receive Christ, that have yet to submit to his lordship, that have yet to be born again. And as I describe this new birth, as I describe this change of heart where the, the heart hates sin and loves Christ, and where there's this pattern of change, this trajectory change, you might know, be thinking, that doesn't sound like me. My life is the same this year as it was last year. I don't see a difference in my heart. Look. Look to Christ. This is what this is what we do. Unbeliever, look to Christ. 
Notice it says, all who looked at the serpent were saved. How much energy does it take to look? He has done the work. And notice at the end, verse 15, it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be looked at. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you say, I don't, I don't think I've been born again, believe. Believe in Christ. Look to him. Trust him. He has done it. And you know what that is? That belief, that faith is the beating of your heart that he has made alive. That is your response to being made alive. Trust in him. Look to Christ. Embrace your responsibility. Because you know what? The Israelites, they didn't deserve to be saved. Neither do we. They are not sent to hell. We are not sent to hell because we don't look. We are sent to hell because we have sinned against God. And God in his mercy has raised up his son Jesus in front of your eyes. Look. Embrace your responsibility. To believer, for you, your action is to rejoice. Rejoice and thank God that salvation is of the Lord. He has done it. If you have looked, it is because he has caused you to be born again. Stop boasting in yourself and, and rejoice that Jesus has made you alive. Our looking to Christ is the result of his grace and his grace alone. Believer, the next action for you is to stop. Stop fretting about losing your salvation. Stop fretting about assurance because he has done it. If he has caused you to be born again, can you cause yourself to not? Are you stronger than God? If you did not earn salvation by your obedience, can you lose it by your disobedience? It is the work of God and God alone. He says, on that day, uh, I will lose none that the Father has given me. None. You are not strong enough to pluck yourself out of your Father's hand. Stop fretting. Repent and believe. That is the daily walk of the Christian. Every day, repent and believe. Believe that he has done it. And then finally, believer, our last action is to speak. Like Jesus, we speak the words of God and invite others to look to Christ because there is no heart that is too dark, too rebellious that God cannot breathe new life into it. Again, Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, who was not born again, and God used the words of Jesus to bring him to life. We have charged to preach this gospel to every creature. It is our job to preach, to teach these words of Jesus. And God will do the work. We sow, and he causes the growth. children? Have your children walked away from the faith? Have they walked away from God? Do you feel that there is no hope for them? There is no heart that he cannot change. Speak. Speak the words of life. There is always hope. Spouse? Is your husband or wife 
not born again, if they treat you poorly, God can change the heart of any man and woman. Speak words of life. Trust Christ. We're called to go to every corner of the world. And you know what corner of the world we're in? Carbondale. We have co-workers. We have those in our communities. We have those in our families. God forbid that we, could, that we would go to the nations and not go to our homes with the gospel. Parents, speak these words to your children. These are the words of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you have spoken to our dead hearts and caused them to live. That we look to you and you alone for salvation. We look to you and you alone for what you have done. And we say, it is finished. The work of Jesus has bought our salvation. His wounds have paid our ransom. And now when we look to that cross, we see not, not merely a man of sorrows, not merely someone who has been crucified and beaten. We see our resurrected Lord. We see this cross and we say, that is where he purchased me. Would you cause us to ever rejoice in this message of the cross? During this time, as we sing, as we look to this wonderful cross, as we contemplate what you have done for us, help us to worship you all the more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.